Okay, today's scripture is taken from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is God's word. Well, good morning once again. I don't know if you caught the joke that Pastor, Pastor Ian was making. There was a Jeopardy reference in there, but oh well, that's fine. Uh, as we turn to God's Word together, let us begin with prayer. Father, we ask that you would prepare us to hear your Word and that you would do a good work in us. We pray that as we have come today, Holy Spirit, would you meet with us here and prepare us to come to the Lord's table. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Two years ago, in June 2017, the terrorist group Islamic State, or ISIS, blew up this structure. Uh, I don't know if anyone knows what it is. Um, it's hard to see because it's in the state of being blown up. Um, but in Mosul, Iraq, the shrine of the Prophet Yunus was destroyed by ISIS. Uh, who is the Prophet Yunus? Yunus is the Quranic name for the Prophet Jonah. And writing in one of the uh, secular newspapers, a journalist, Samuel Sigal, he wrote these words. Uh, the tomb, one of Iraq's iconic monuments, was revered by Muslims, Christians, and Jews alike. It was believed to be the final resting place of the biblical prophet Jonah, who was swallowed by a whale and who warned the inhabitants of the Assyrian city of Nineveh, now Mosul, that God would destroy them if they did not repent for their sins. Jonah's story appears in the Bible as well as in the Quran. 
His tomb is perched on a high mound containing many layers of history and an ancient Assyrian temple and palace, a site of devotion for Jews, a Christian church, and a 12th century mosque. For me, as I watched this episode unfolding in the news, I was reminded how real and trustworthy our Bible is, that God's Word is absolutely true. And as I watched Mosul, modern-day Nineveh, fall to ISIS, I was reminded not just of Jonah, I was also reminded of the book of Nahum, which prophesied that Nineveh would be destroyed in 612 BC. But beyond just that, I wonder whether we know the heart of what Jonah is about, the core of its message, and, and what that story really is about. You know the story very well. There's a prophet of God, Jonah. He's an Israelite. He's a patriot. He loves Israel. He loves his people. And he's called by God to leave and to preach mercy to the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians are the enemies of God's people, the regional bullies, and they are an aggressor of Israel. They're a threat. And Jonah thinks, what? These dirty pagans, you want me to go and preach good news to them? And he says, no, no, thank you very much. And he'll go from what is now today Syria to what is likely to be Spain. And he escapes. And he says, anything but that. I just don't want to bring good news to people who don't deserve it. In literary terms, the book of Jonah is an absurdist tale. It's a satirical tale. And you're supposed to read those four chapters and think, my gosh, this prophet is so out of step with his God. He's so out of step with the God that he worships. And God has to use a fish to bring this prophet who wants to be a judge to repentance. And this is the exact same idea that Paul presents in Romans 2. That God's people are so quick and so comfortable with being the judge that they are out of step with the character of God. Friends, today as we hear God's word, the message is clear. What are we when we look at Jonah? Let's look at Romans 2 together in the text that was just read for us by Angel. There are three sections uh, to, to, the, uh, to the sermon this morning. And the first is this, that the unqualified judges, Paul says, the unqualified judges are called to judge themselves. Last week, we learned from Romans chapter 1 that all are under the wrath of God. And now, Paul turns away uh, from that list of sins in verse eight, verses 18 to 32. Now, to a very specific audience. Look what he says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. This is the audience that Paul speaks to, the moral crowd of the church. These would have been the folks who heard Romans 1 and that list in verses 18 to 32, that long list of sins. And when they heard it, they would have said, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. And after that list, Paul says, now you who judge, in that list, those of you who were judging, you have no excuse. Can we identify with those folks who think that way? Well, John Stott, uh, the well-known British preacher, he describes these folks very well. He says, they work themselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours. When Eugene preached last week that sin is this great reversal of, 
honoring God and giving thanks to Him and instead preferring the created things. Uh, that was the doctrine of sin laid out for us there. And, and these folks would have said, no, that's not me, that's not me. And here Paul says, no, no, now we're going to talk about you. Now we're going to talk about you. And scholars agree this is probably the Jewish wing of the church, most likely the, the wing that knew the Bible well. As the gospel was preached in Rome, many people were becoming Christians, not just the Jews who already knew God's word, but also Gentile Greeks were coming to faith in Christ. And many were bringing their lifestyles and their habits together. And like Jonah, many of the Jewish wing were looking to their neighbors and saying, no, 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 this is not acceptable. That's not, that's not right. They shouldn't be like this. They shouldn't be like that. And in the process, forgotten who they were. Sometimes God's people who know God's truth and live by God's truth are so hard, find it very difficult to see God's truth about them. Uh, it becomes a habit for us almost to read God's truth and try and apply it for each other. But Romans 2 tells us, no, 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 apply it to yourself. Paul says this rebuke is for you. And why? He says, in passing judgment, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You see, the problem with our judgment is that we don't apply it to ourselves. The word for that is hypocrisy. And the argument should be traced very carefully. Look at this verse carefully. Paul is not saying that judgments and judging is wrong. Listen, listen carefully. He's not saying that judging is wrong. He's saying that you're not qualified to do that work. It's not you. God is the one who will judge. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, in fact, writing to the Corinthian church, he insists that the church judge. I hope you hear me carefully. Paul has insisted that the church judge in 1 Corinthians 5, but on the basis of his word and his law and his righteousness there. And in Romans, the caution for us is, be so careful when you are to judge others because you don't meet that standard. This is really nothing new. Paul got this from a reliable source. Who did he get this from? Well, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says the exact same thing. Why do you see the speck, Jesus says, that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in yours? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in yours? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is telling us, if you're going to judge someone, start with yourself. Start there. There is a great story that I love very much in John chapter 8. It's a beautiful story where Jesus is uh, teaching, and the Pharisees of the day, they come and they, it's quite amazing actually this story, because Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees grab this woman caught in adultery, and they drag her through the streets, and they throw her into his teaching circle. I mean, can you imagine that? Just throwing her right in front of him, and they say, what are you going to do about this lady? She was caught in adultery. And you know the story. And Jesus says, let you, let those, or rather, let him who is without sin among you, and you, Listen to that carefully. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And then he carried on. And eventually the crowd disappeared because they knew in their hearts that none of them was qualified to be the judge. This week, 
there was this uh, terrible thing that happened here. I'm not sure if you're aware. There was a national leak uh, of the HIV registry, uh, of basically patients who have HIV and were put on a national list, and that, and that list was leaked down. It was a horrible thing. It should never have happened. It was awful. But you know, one of the things that was even more awful is seeing some of the reactions from people as they heard that there was a HIV list and they heard about this. This uh, article in Channel News Asia, there's this quote uh, that I put there, uh, and someone who was a HIV victim responding to the information that's out there, he says, on a personal note, it's just the amount of things that I'm reading online that are so hurtful to read. The misinformation that's being spread, the bigotry and the kind of comments, it's an onslaught. Let me read to you some of the comments of my Christian friends that I saw on Facebook. My Christian friends. This is terrible. Such people deserve to die. God hates homosexuals. These are just some of the hurtful things that in my, in my circle I saw in comments. Eugene made it clear last week that homosexual practice is a sin. And he also said that bigotry is a sin. By our condemnation, we show that we are also condemned and ill-placed to be the judges of others. You know why? Jesus tells all of us that we are all sexual sinners. Think about Matthew 5, where Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you have committed adultery with her. Well, who amongst us has not? Or in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul says that if you fashion an idol of your own making, of your body, you have sinned against your own body. Which one amongst us have not done that? Friends, is this hypocrisy something that we are willing to acknowledge about ourselves? I hope you're not offended because I'm not targeting anyone. I'm speaking of all of us, including myself. We are unqualified judges. And Paul says, under the gospel, all of us, all of us are condemned. God alone can judge. He says in verse 2, the judgment of God, we know this, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He knows, we know that, that he, his judgment is right. But we are so quick to turn it on others. And why are we so quick to turn it on others? There are two false assumptions that Paul deals with. Two false assumptions. The first that he lays out, that when religious people practice sin, they think they will escape God's judgment. Look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and do them yet yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's the first assumption. And the second assumption, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The two assumptions are, one, that we think we can get away, that we can somehow escape God's judgment, religious people, and two, we think that God's patience asks us for nothing. One, we think that religious people can somehow escape God's judgment. And two, we think that God's patience asks us for nothing. These questions by Paul are incredibly scary questions. Do we think that we can escape God's judgment? Do we think that He's not asking us for anything? Friends, have we carried these assumptions into our lives? Do we think that God's judgment does not apply to us, that the words of God are for our neighbor and not us, 
that He's not upset at how we are living our lives. That as long as we show up in church or Bible study or care group and do the necessary, it's okay. That my sin is manageable, it's safe. Paul says no. The sins of religious people do not get a special pass before God. The second assumption is equally scary. God is patient and is kind. And maybe one day he'll give me the ch- I mean, he'll, give me, he'll wait for me and I'll get my act together. One day, I'll start reading my Bible. One day, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll tithe one day and I'll get serious about, about God one day, but maybe not today. Friends, every time we tell God not today, we are presuming on the kindness of his patience. What is God saying to you right now? Maybe you've had a long week and you're really tired. You're really tired and you've just had it up to here, you know. And you've come to church today because this is what you do. What is God saying to you right now? Friends, are we presuming on the kindness of God, the riches of His kindness, how good He is to us and how patient He is to us to say, no, 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 God, maybe not today. Maybe tomorrow. God's patience is not just for you to appreciate, it's meant to lead you to repentance. Do you see that? Last year when I was traveling and I was on vacation, I went to uh, a full-size exhibit of, uh, that replicated the, uh, Noah's Ark. And inside Noah's Ark, there was this, not inside Noah's Ark, but inside the, this exhibit, there was, a, there was a section of exhibits. And this, uh, I'm not sure if you can see, it's a bit small. There was a section that was devoted to the children's accounts of the book of Noah. And can you see, there's just so many. There's like, there was like a whole wall full of children's books of, of, of uh, the story of Noah. And the two-by-two two animals, and the rainbow, and, and, and Noah and his family, and, and, they, and all very sweet. Uh, but the point of the exhibit was to say, do you see how many ways the story of Noah and God's judgment has been domesticated. You see, with all the cute animals and all the rainbow and all that, the main meaning of of Noah has been lost. The verses before, or the chapters before the book of Noah in Genesis 6 have this amazing verse. In Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a really scary verse because of all of those exclusive amplifying words. Can you see it? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that is the backdrop for the story of Noah. And that God had to destroy the world by flood Friends, the story of of Noah is exactly the kind of warning that you and I don't want to hear because we presume on God's kindness and mercy and because we believe that religious people get a special pass. Repentance ought to be our practice. Luke chapter 17, Jesus takes this same idea of God's judgment and he says in Luke 17 that just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And this is the point of Noah's story. 
and the flood came and destroyed them all. <laughs> that is the great warning of Noah. And, and Paul says the exact same thing in the next series of verses. Look at verse 5. This is the alternative to grace together. And if we don't repent, what happens to us? Verse 5. Because of your heart and impenitent, which means unrepentant, because of your heart and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friends, these are the terrifying words that describe the God's day of His wrath pouring out. And, and you remember Paul is writing this to the church, to Christian people, and he's warning them that this day is coming where His wrath will be poured out. This is the same wrath he talks about in chapter 1, verse 18, and the day of that great pouring out of wrath. The prophet Joel wrote about this day. He said, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. On that day when Jesus comes as judge, religious people will not get a pass. Bible reading people will not get a special pass for our sins. God's kindness will reach its full and His wrath stored up will be released. Charles Wesley, who wrote a great hymn, had this to say. He wrote, Every eye shall now behold Him, robed in dreadful majesty, those who set and not and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. What a terrible, terrible thought. On that day that when we face him, all of our sins will be revealed, religious or not, and all will tremble when that day comes. Warning us of this, Paul says there's only two ways that we are to live, and verses 6 to 11 lay them out. Verses 6 to 11 tell us about these two ways to live. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Each one of us only has two options as God renders to us what we have done. On one hand, you see, I think I have a table up there that, that summarizes this material. Two ways to live. One way that says that if we honor God and we give thanks to Him, the way that Romans 1 asks, says that we ought to do, and we are patient in well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, what is ours? Eternal life. There will be glory and honor and peace for those who do good. And friends, there is no middle ground. The other way, for those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, who live self-seeking lives, refusing to obey the truth of repentance and live unrighteous lives, there will be wrath and fury. It's become very popular to speak of hell and that wrath and fury. It's become very popular to speak of it as just a closing of the eyes, a gentle joining of the universe, 
and slipping off into peace. But God's word says, no, that's not the case. Wrath and fury. Friends, do we believe this? Do we believe that this, these are the only two ways to live? In, Matthew, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a, it's a, it's a frightening story because on one, on one side you have this rich man, on the other side, Lazarus. And between them, a chasm that is fixed in between and no one can cross from one to the other. The parable tells us that hell there is torment. The rich man seeks water because his tongue is on fire. And he, like all those who are in hell, we learn, are absolutely unrepentant. The story tells us that this rich man who is a Jew, who calls Father Abraham his father, uh, and, he, and he has brothers who have, the, who have Moses and the prophets, which is the Old Testament. So we know that this rich man is a Jew. In hell, there's no remorse and no regret, even though in his life he lived with cruelty towards the poor man, Lazarus. And in fact, in his afterlife, as he's speaking to Father Abraham, this rich man says, hey, Father Abraham, get Lazarus, get Lazarus who is with you. Get him to bring some water for my tongue. Get him to cool my tongue. Because I'm suffering in here and I really need some water. Get Lazarus to do it. And then when Father Abraham says no, he says, get Lazarus to go and share the gospel with my brothers because they need to know what's coming. Friends, the folks who are in hell are there because they are unrepentant. If you think about that, what does that mean for us? Those of us who belong to the Lord. Repentance must be our main language. Repentance must be our core practice. Repentance must be our culture. We must not be those who push off the conviction of God onto others to say, maybe you should repent, maybe you should do this, maybe you should do that, maybe you could have done that better. Friends, we must be the people who say that if we are graced together, repentance is our culture. And we turn to God and often with tears we say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for the way I've lived my life. I know that you see me as I truly am and before you I have no excuse. Forgive us, O oh God, for, for we are sinners. We must be those who say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The famous English writer G.K. Chesterton was asked by a newspaper, he, he was asked to come up with an answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? And his answer, he just wrote back, he said, Dear sir, I am sincerely G.H. Esseton. Friends, this is the kind of answer that Christians must embody, the kind of culture that we must learn to promote, the kind of culture that says, Lord, before you, all my sins are known, and you see me plainly for what I am. Forgive me for Jesus' sake, for there is no other hope. How do you think we're doing in this culture of repentance? How, how do we practice repentance together? Is it part of our practice to go to one another and confess our sin? Is it our habit to ask for help? Just this week, uh, a brother, of my, one of my, one of, a bro, not, my, not my literal brothers, because that would expose them, but my other, another brother uh, texted, and he said, uh, dear friend, you know, uh, I just had a big fight with, uh, fiance and so on. 
pray for me. And we kind of had a bit of an exchange. And I was so pleased at the end of the night when we were texting, texting, and it was late, I was half. Uh, he finally arrived at this point where, where it was, I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry to God for that. And the other party also said, I'm sorry to God for that. And I'm sorry for this. How do we help one another get there? How do we help one another learn to pray this way? Learn to speak to one another this way? Speaking like G.K. Chesterton, what's wrong with the world? I am. I am what's wrong with the world. You see, that's what Paul is saying, isn't he? Or do you, the alternative is to presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Jerry Bridges, who is a great writer, has a book called Respectable Sins. And inside, there's a whole chapter devoted to the topic of judgmentalism. Uh, that chapter is worth the price of the book. You should read it. It's really good. And in it, he says that Christian people sometimes take our opinion and we lift it up so high that it becomes absolute truth. And when we do that, uh, we subject God to our judgment because we tell Him that we are more worthy of judgment than He. Than he. And He gives three examples. And I wonder whether these are examples worth reflecting on right here. One example that we struggle with in judgment in the church is in the area of dress or attire. How we dress. What kind of attitudes do we have to those who dress differently from us? Or not as well as we think they should be dressing. Second, he talks about the area of music. Some types of music are more sinful than others. Some types of music are more holy than others, he says. Those are opinions, but don't elevate them to the level of truth. And the last one, he says, is the area of alcohol. We have our convictions, each one of us, but do we lift our opinions up to the level of truth and subtly practice the kind of judgmentalism that is anti-gospel? Respectable sins. Friends, in that list that, I, that we laid out just now, that list of righteousness and unrighteousness, you know, the real truth is there's only one person on the righteous column and everyone else is on the other column. If Ben could just put out that list one more time, there really just is one person who honors and give thanks, gives thanks to the Creator and everyone else suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. That is Paul's point in Romans 2. Who is this one man? Friends, this man is not Jonah. He's not the prophet of God. In fact, he said that he is the one who is greater than Jonah. This prophet didn't just hear God's words like Jonah did. He did them. He lived them out all the way to the cross. This man didn't rebel against God like Jonah did. He didn't run away. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He bowed in submission and in the garden he said, not my will, but yours be done. His heart towards others was not hard. It was compassionate and tender, like it is towards many of us here. He intercedes for us instead of rejecting God's ministry. And he did it for us. Like Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish for three days, this 
prophet was buried in the earth for three days and then he rose to power. Jonah's tomb may have been blown up by ISIS, but does it really matter? Because Jesus' tomb is empty. We don't even know where it is exactly because there's no body in it. When he comes again and we see him in glory, all of humanity will either stand against him, suffering his judgment, or pleading the merits of his blood. Friends, if you are a repenting sinner today, then that's all you have, the merits of his blood. Nothing you can do, nothing you can do can make him accept you other than that. We are preparing for the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. And the Lord's Supper, this table, this table of the King, is a symbol of that body and blood broken for us. This table is a table of repentance. And I wonder as we come before God's table today to receive these elements, would you put aside in your heart a judgmental spirit? Would you put aside a cynical, critical spirit? And I, I would like to just, I'm not going to ask you, but I'll, I'll, I'll suggest to you that today, as a church, as we pass out the bread or the symbol of, God's, of Christ's body and the symbol of His blood in your heart, would you whisper to the person next to you, would you whisper, this is Christ's blood and Christ's body for you? That's the culture that we want to have. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Friends, all of us in this room, if we have repented, God has genuinely forgiven. That is the great news of the gospel. That we struggle to believe, but we by faith must believe. This is a table of repentance, and let's prepare our hearts as we come before God. In these moments of silence, these are the words of a Scottish minister, John Bailey, and they help us to repent. In your heart, if you would repent, join me with these words. Heavenly Father, merciful and patient, hear my prayer of repentance. I started this week with hopes of righteousness, but now I sit down ashamed and burdened, knowing the things I did not do that I should have, and the things I did that I should not have. Forgive me, Lord, for my deceitful heart and crooked thoughts, for harsh words spoken deliberately and thoughtless words spoken hastily for envious and wandering eyes for ears that rejoice in sin and gossip and rejoice not in the truth for greedy hands for wandering and loitering feet for proud and haughty looks Lord I cannot claim a right to be forgiven by you but I cast myself upon the love and grace in Christ. I have no righteousness of my own, and I can blame no one for my sin 
or explain away what I have done, either by circumstances or nature or blame temptation. I can only ask, Father, that you forgive me for the sake of Jesus Christ who died for me. Amen. As we come to this time to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are practicing something that has been ancient and practiced by Jews for thousands of years. It points back to the festival called Passover, when the angel of death passed over those whose doorposts were covered in the blood of the Lamb. As Jesus gathered with his disciples in that Last Supper moment, as he added new meaning, his most intimate